Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. We're in the new year with a special guest and a topic that I know will be of interest to all of our listeners who are passionate about uh, food and making a difference in the world. Uh, it is Tom Costigan, who's an award-winning author, uh, journalist, founder of the Climate Survivalist column in USA Today, and most recently partnering with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, on an important new book called Cool Food that we're going to talk about. And we are um, recording this on January 8th. And just last night, Robert Downey Jr. got a Golden Globe Award. So yet another accolade, Tom, for this dynamic duo that the two of you represent uh, among many accolades that you've had and that he's had. Welcome and congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. And thank you for the shout out to Robert. I know he'll appreciate it. Well, um, we're going to get to talking about the book and uh, your partnership with Robert in a little bit. But um, one of the reasons that we wanted to be talking to you today is uh, there's certainly an entire generation of people who are absolutely passionate about the issue of climate. At Share Our Strength, we're passionate about the issue of hunger and food insecurity and nutrition. And I think we've all been uh, increasingly coming to the conclusion that there's a very strong relationship between the two. These are not necessarily different topics, and you're the perfect person to guide us through those connections and why uh, what we eat matters, not just to us, but to the to the world, to the planet. Um, before we get into all that, though, just I want to make sure our uh, listeners have a little bit of understanding of uh, you and your background and your path to becoming a, a writer and a journalist. Where did this all begin? Sure. Well, I, you know, I went to journalism school and then I started off just like many other journalists at daily newspapers and worked my way up to magazines and ended up in New York and then started working on some documentaries and um, then moved into to books. Uh, so there was an interesting segue that, that got me into the social aspect of this that uh, really opened my eyes to the environmental movement to you know, the power that we all have that we may not even think that we have and just using that in a way that can help other people. And well, I'm, yeah, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt to back you up even a little bit further. You started with journalism school, but why journalism school? Like where did the, where did the spark come from? Were there journalists that you admired? Was it in the family? I'm just like curious on the personal side, what got you into this? Oh, sure. No one ever asks me that. So that's great. Um, thank you. I always knew that I wanted to write. So I was either going to be a writer or an artist. I knew that just from, you know, the age of eight. And I was quite candidly a crap artist. So it left the other option on the table for me. <laughs> and so I, uh, I wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know how. And I think for a lot of people, that's the case. You kind of have this inclination that you want to do something, but you don't know what that's like. You have no idea what the discipline is, what the craft is, what direction to take it. Is it advertising, copywriting? Is it screenwriting? Is it you know poetry? Is it journalism? What is it? So I got a little bit of validation throughout my um, high school years. And then into college, I um, was at a business school for the first semester, and it was a disaster. So I knew that that wasn't my calling, but there was one writing course that I had in that first semester in college, 
And one of the professors, actually the writing professor says, you know, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> Meaning you shouldn't be at this college. It is a business school. You should be at a, a different place to really, you know, write because this is what I think you should do. And so she recommended that I go to Emerson College, which is a very creative school focused journalism and writing and communication studies and and um, interesting just story just to, to keep on it. I walked into my first journalism class and they were all sitting down. Everybody was able to type. They had the skills. The professor gave out the assignment and it was basically to write your name, write why you're in class and what you hope to get out of it. But I couldn't type. So I packed up my books and started to walk out of class. And she said, at Emerson, yeah. This is a PPD award-winning professor, uh, Pam Bullard, who said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I don't know how to type, so I can't take your class. So she gave me some very direct you know, <laughs> responses to that. And she said, sit down, you'll figure it out. And I did. And I ended up uh, bonding. She was my mentor for many years. And you know, she recommended me for a lot of different positions. And I was able to an internship and start writing for a, um, a Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper, worked on some of those stories with the Lawrence Eagle Tribune out of Massachusetts to go way back in my career. And then from there, ended up uh, doing a bunch of other journalism in D.C., covering Congress and some of the government agencies and moved to New York to write for magazines. So well, it a very you know, it's so, it, it's so fascinating. And I always, you know, kind of I'm interested in this and kind of ask the question because so many people in Europe, a prime example, are successful not because of the linear path that they took, but uh, just the opposite, because of the nonlinear path that they took and the, um, to some degree, the kind of the intentionality of what you were really passionate about, but also some of the random good fortune that you had a mentor that steered you in that direction. Yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of people, it's a great point. You know, I have a lot of tenacity and so I don't give up very easily. And so I just kept pushing it. And then once I started to understand, okay, these are the rules, then I could start to succeed. And, 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 you know, I started to excel and started to, you know, really, I graduated in three years and I graduated, you know, basically magna cum laude. And, and so then I went to graduate school and, you know, wanted to focus on more of an international career uh, as well. So I kind of push the envelope. Once you understand the rules, and I think this is a big lesson for a lot of people, is just getting an idea of what, what it's going to take and what you should be doing. And I think especially in the creative fields where there's no rule book, it's just, you know, you do the best that you can and you work really, really hard and then you hope to get some validation that leads to another door opening. And then you walk through that door and hopefully that leads to a bigger door opening and so on and so forth. And I feel like that happens in a lot of, a lot of creative you know, fields. And the reference you made to the fact that there are no rules is uh, in some ways a, a challenge when somebody's starting out. But in some ways, it's also a great liberating asset. <laughs> I, I would think, you know, that you could do things, try things the way you want to try them. Yeah. And, you know, now that I've been in the game for many decades, I realize and and not only in writing, but in, in many industries, we all kind of have this idea that 
people know better that there's this secret sauce, that there's an elixir that's being kept from us, and it, it isn't. You know, I think there's a famous quote of, you know, if one human can do it, so can I. And I feel like that's something to live by. That, you know, we, we, if someone else can do it, so can you. And just to have that type of, you know, confidence, and that's a big thing. You know, I'm not dismissing that at all, but gaining that confidence and, you know, being able to use that in a way that you can then keep stepping up, stepping up. I think that's, that's the trick to it all. Okay. So we were starting to talk about the genesis of your interest in climate and the environment. One of the things you, you referenced as you were describing it was, you know, the, the, the importance of recognizing the, I think you said the power that we all have and i loved hearing you say that because at share our strength the whole notion behind share our strengths anti-hunger and anti-poverty work is baked into that name share our strength that everybody has a strength to share everybody has a power uh in your words and it can be larger it can be small and if it's small combined with others it can add up to something large but um you clearly had uh, an intuition or an impulse uh, about that and the sense that if people understood these climate and environment issues better, they would activate and make a difference. Yeah, not just an intuition, a, a real life experience. And it, um, it was when I was moving and migrating between um, I, magazine work and I did some work in the theater and then I got asked to do some, some documentary work and I found myself in um, Africa and Ethiopia. And I was doing a revisiting of the, I don't know if you remember the We Are the World campaign, but kind of the, the We Are the World camps where, you know, they were set up to really help alleviate poverty that was going on in the region. And there was a big musical campaign, if you remember, and songs that went along. With it. Yeah. So I was over there doing a, uh, you know, stand up just, you know, with a cameraman basically giving a report on one of the dry riverbeds in Ethiopia. And I noticed uh, the color purple in the distance. And it was just a dot on the horizon. And the dot got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it turned out to be a young girl of about eight or 10 years old in a purple dress. And she came over and we had been in the, you know, the, we had been in country for a little bit. And um, kind of knew the drill of being asked for things. So, you know, being this, you know, jaded white man from the United States, uh, after she had a conversation with my cameraman, I said, you know, just very curtly and, and not with any type of empathy or caring, I said, how much? And he said, wait a minute, that's, that's not what she wants. And so they had more of a conversation, and I said, "Well, what what does she want?" You know, I kind of got intrigued. And he wants, said he said that she wants to know if we have a pencil. And then they had more of a uh, conversation. And it turns out uh, now, all of a sudden, you know, everything is down, right? All my defenses, and now I'm, you know, criticizing myself and, and trying to understand what's going on. And she wanted a pencil so she could do her homework. So she could, um, you know, become a doctor so she could help other people in the village. And right then and there, dude, I was like, wow, the power that I have to give someone a pencil in the, you know, the, the ripple effect of that 
whether it manifests in that way or not, is an incredible gift. And I have to do something with that. So I have to take what in that circumstance was a physical pencil and put that into a metaphorical pencil that I had in what I did for a living, which is to write. And I turned my writing into a prescriptive type of writing that would empower other people. And especially seeing all the environmental destruction and sort of the ramifications of climate change on the ground, on the front lines, there in Africa, in in the horn of Africa there. I decided to do something um, where I would provide hundreds of solutions, prescriptive solutions that people could embrace in the here and the now, simple steps. And this is 2007, 2008, of recycling, changing other light bulbs, new information back then, things that we just do, you know, as a matter of course now. And it's just, and I put that in book form, and it came out serendipitously right on the heels of an inconvenient truth, which had left all of those questions up for grabs. And I had all the solutions, hundreds of them. And I was fortunate to have some of the biggest stars and celebrities and influencers in the world participate in that. So uh, Cameron Diaz and Justin Timberlake, everybody to Dale Earnhardt Jr., to you know all sorts of people who really cared even way back then and were able to contribute something of their own to the book. And so that became a, a you know pretty big bestseller. And that brought me on this journey of saying, okay, now what else can we do? What else can we do to affect with a biggie people, places, and things all over the world? Because as we know now, people, places, and things all over the world affect us. So how can we then shift this symbiotic relationship into a more positive one? And that's what I've been doing. Fascinating. Well, uh, and, and the reason it's fascinating for me is I feel like so many uh, connections to you, even though we've just started talking for the first time. But uh, when we started Share Our Strength back in 1984, you'll remember the catastrophic famine in Ethiopia was uh, started to get attention in the United States in August of 1984. And there were Washington Post headlines about 200,000 to die this summer. And then over the next several months, there was We Are the World and Live Aid with Bob Geldof and so forth. And my sister, Debbie Shore, who's often on this podcast with me, and I had both been in uh, president, presidential politics. We'd worked in Gary Hart's campaign. And that campaign had come to an end. And we looked at what was going on in Ethiopia. And we looked at you know We Are the World. And we were so inspired by all of the response. But we also felt very specifically that these were great things, but they would all be gone in five or 10 years. And maybe we could create a, um, an organization that would be a more lasting response a more lasting institution. And so that was directly where share our strength came from. It was the Ethiopian famine and even more, uh, kind of gave, gave me goosebumps to hear you talking about the, the purple dot kind of on the horizon when I went to Ethiopia, which was not until some years later. Um, the formative experience that I had was standing in the a, in a back of a classroom, uh, which was kind of crowded. And um, one young woman up in the front turned, I think she was probably 10 or 11 or 12 years old. Her, I remember her name was Alima 
dowry. And uh, she turned to me and she said something. Very, she was very soft-spoken, as many of the Ethiopian children that we met on that visit were. And she turned and she said something. And I could see her lips moving, but I couldn't hear what she was saying. So I went over to her. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, what did you say? And she spoke beautiful English. She said, God bless you for coming here. Thank you. And it was kind of like your experience. She didn't really want anything, uh, certainly in terms of money, except to say um, she knew that we could make uh, you know, a difference. So, um, very, very similar in, uh, in a lot of ways. And that's fueled and powered, uh, a lot of our work at share our strength as well. So I love the notion of being a kind of prescriptive type of writer, as you described it, let's jump into, uh, the, the book, which is coming out, I think in just a couple of weeks, cool food, Erasing Your Carbon Footprint One Bite at a Time uh, that you've worked on with Robert Downey Jr. How did that collaboration come apart? Come come about? Sure. Um, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, Robert was a, a fan of my writing. And, um, you know, I, I've known him uh, for a number of years. And I had a book, uh, my last book, that talked about different things that we could do in the climate technology space that could actually really change the environment rather quickly for the better. And so um, Robert and I started talking about that and he um, wanted to do a, a television series on it. So basically we started developing that, got to know each other even better and that manifested in something that we thought we could do even more quickly that was even more accessible for people, uh, which was rather than, you know, going after the private sector to change their ways and invent new technologies, which is still fascinating. And, you know, asking people to put up solar panels or EVs or some things like that, we decided to do something much more analog. And that was to focus on food and the food choices that we make, and again, the the pass along effect of that and the kind of supply demand equation are super powerful, equivalent to the pencil I was talking about before. And just making that type of choice and showing um, that there is demand for for more food, better food, higher quality food that doesn't drag our resources, and you know this very well. And that increases the variety that we have available that may actually lift people out of poverty in the developing world if we were to embrace, you know, more types of food uh, that could be available to us at the grocery store rather than what is just basically pushed upon us by, um, you know, the food system. Then we might have a chance to to change things, uh, you know, in a bigger way, in a mass way, and that's that's what we focused on. So, what are some examples of things that we could do now, uh, and also examples of things that you would want us to have the option to do as things change, as industry changes? Yeah, it's not it's not a heavy lift. It's really just you know you walk into the grocery store and we're faced with all these you know types of choices. And of the three things that we need to survive, water, air, and food, food is the only one that you have a choice over many different types of variety. And if we chose that type of variety that was more environmentally friendly and foods that 
have a higher capacity for carbon storage. You know, carbon dioxide obviously is the biggest contributor to climate change. And if we were able to choose foods that had a higher capacity for storing that carbon, I'm talking like tree nuts or apples or seaweeds or perpetual, you know, perennial types of plants, perpetual spinach, those types of things that have either a low carbon footprint or are able to store more carbon, we will then have this afforestation type of mentality where more will be grown to service our need, in other words, and our want and our demand, then that will be able to naturally draw down more carbon from the atmosphere. So it's, it's pretty much a simple choice of choosing that apple over a more processed type of snack, choosing tree nuts over potato chips, for example choosing lentils which have a higher you know percentage per pound of protein than beef even uh obviously you know migrating if you can off of uh, of your meat diet or swapping it out on a percentage basis that adds up too so it's making so if you're yes yeah, if you're a lay person uh, is processing the key thing to be looking at in terms of processed foods so as i'm listening to you i'm thinking how would i as a non-scientist know what foods store a lot of carbon. Yeah, and that's why we wrote the book, to give people a, gu- a guide because it's not readily known. And it's it's basically a new category of food that is really growing like, uh, you know, weeds all over the world. There's more than 2 billion meals now that are served annually on a cool food standard basis. So on a basis that embraces perennial types of plants on a basis that embraces ancient grains like millet or teff or, you know, those types of things. Um, you know, einkorn types of wheat, uh, lentils, as I mentioned before, strawberries, those types of just whole foods are becoming their own category. And there wasn't a guide out there to demystify it. And that's what we discovered as we were going down this research path. And we said, well, why don't we just do that? And so that's what the book is. It really is a guide to help people make those choices because it isn't that easy to understand. You know, who does know how much food, you know, stores carbon? If you start to step back and think about it a little bit, you go, okay, the bigger the tree, the more carbon storage capacity. So if you start to think about coconuts, for example, pretty simple to get your brain around that, Um, you know, things along those lines. So that's what we did. And we have different categories throughout the book that are fun, they're informative, you know, we have these adventures, we go and interview a lot of scientists and influencers and um, advocates of this type of movement, top chefs who are embracing this type of movement as well. So it really is just a new way of thinking about what we're eating. And since we all do that daily, it's a very powerful choice that we can make. Well, you mentioned uh, top chefs, uh, influencers. I was going to ask, that kind of leads to my next question. Who are the uh, leaders in this space? Who are the reference brands, the models that we should be looking to and learn from either on the culinary side or the business side or even the political side? Who do you, who do you see as your allies and out in front on this? Because it sounds like what you're talking about is so cutting edge that there probably aren't many out in front yet, but they're, they're coming. 
But there are some expected uh, voices out there, like Alice Waters, you know, who has, you know, been really the pioneer in the farm-to-table movement and is now looking at, you know, the source of where we get everything. And that's really what it's about. It's understanding where things come from, eating, you know, by seasonality, those types of things. Um, There are other chefs out there who are very mindful of food waste. For example, uh, Doug McMaster, who has an amazing zero-waste restaurant called Silo. Um, Others out there, Elaine Ducasse, who's just done a whole program at Versailles and made that uh, vegetarian uh, type of menu really gourmet style. But an easy one is just to go to the Green Restaurant Association in the United States and see which restaurants are members. And there's a whole lot of them out there that are not just, you know, Michelin star. They're not just fancy. They're fast casual. They're even fast foods. I mean, one of the, the biggest influencers in the space is um, a, a fast food chain called Max Burger out of Sweden, which serves more hamburgers on an annual basis than McDonald's or Burger King in that country. Um, and so these types of approaches where we're, you know, not only talking about just, you know, food that's very much accessible to the, you know, everyday person, but also, you know, on, if you want to go out for a really nice meal as well, there's that, you know, opportunity as well. So across the board, there are many influencers out there, you know, the mayor in New York is a vegan. Um, so, we you know interviewed him and we've um talked to others who are food psychologists which is a fascinating field just to see which foods triggers which types of emotions and and why certain colors make us hungry like red and yellow that's why you see so much of that on fast food places and you know then to talk about people who are doing things to mitigate food waste which we discovered is such a massive, massive problem that can lead to, uh, you know, so many other issues in the environmental space uh, and not just, you know, uh, the perversity that people are going hungry at the same time that we're wasting so much food, but also the methane that's produced when that food goes to waste and the destruction it has on the environment. So, you know, there's so many people. That's what was so fun to to really talk to all these great minds and have them participate in the book as well. And and Robert and I really appreciated their you know contribution to what we did. Um, so we we have a lot of those voices that we we lean on because we're not scientists in this space, but we did talk to a lot of food scientists and people who are expert in this space as as well as the chefs who are you know out there trying to do something on a, on a day to day basis. This book is getting more interesting every second that I listen to you talk about it. Uh, It's called Cool Food, Erasing Your Carbon Footprint One Bite at a Time. And it's coming out from Blackstone Publishing in in mid to late January, January 23rd, I think is your pub date. Correct. And the the term cool food, does that uh, say a little bit about that? Because it sounds like that's directly related to the idea of uh, a uh, low carbon footprint. Yep, cooling the planet. The terminology, cooling the planet. Yep, and there's a cool food pledge that a lot of people are, a lot of companies and organizations, college campuses, uh, entire cities are signing up to. 
And the Cool Food Pledge just is about, you know, making your carbon footprint less by the food that you're served. And so some of the biggest food companies in the world are signing up to this. And it's uh, it's a really admirable thing to do. And we feel like that's that's helpful as well in the movement. Well, I'd like to ask a little bit about, you know, what we probably call our theory of change. Because as I'm listening to you talk, Tom, and I'm thinking about the choices that we can each make as individuals, which I, like you, believe can be very, very powerful, is the thinking that, 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 the, um, that the market will follow, that uh, industry will follow. Because on the one hand, I think there's all these things that we can do. And then on the other hand, I think, well, changing uh, the farm industry, changing the corporate food sector is going to be like, you know, turning a, a ship around in the ocean, a, you know, an ocean liner. It's going to be very slow. So, how, you know, just kind of tease out a little bit the thread of how you think this leads to change in the long run. Yep. And this is a critical year for that to happen. We not only have the farm bill that, as you well know, is being, you know, making its way through Congress that decides, you know, what types of food gets seized, what ends up in our plates. We also have the USDA recommended American diet. So uh, I think there is more than 100 countries now around the world that have recommended diets. And that's directly affecting the food, the global food system, because the when you have the U.S. military, which has an enormous budget, and you have any any institution that receives government funding that serves meals, they have to abide by these regulations, schools specifically. So the school lunch programs are you know, massively affected by a recommended diet. And if we could incorporate more cool foods into these types of systems, we could then have that, as you suggest, that huge battleship kind of turn around uh, more quickly. But just to use the energy sector, which actually eclipses the, you know, the, the food sector in terms of, you know, GDP, you affect, uh, you have a system there where alternative energy is being embraced more and more. And we are seeing, especially after the last climate conference, the ship starting to turn toward alternative energies and weaning us off of fossil fuels. And I think the same thing can be done on the supply-demand side with food. And I have to tell you, just candidly, talking to the heads of these food companies, talking to food directors at school districts, they want to hear from everybody. They do have their ears open. They do track Twitter. They do pay attention. I went up to Hunt's Point, which is the largest food market in the world uh, by volume in the Bronx, New York, and spoke to the people there who decide and distribute and from the farmers to your local grocery store, your bodegas, what have you, convenience stores, all along the East Coast and into the Mid-Atlantic states. And they said, we pay attention. That's why we, we knew that kale was trending. And so we went to our farmers and said, grow more kale. You know, they, they knew that cauliflower was starting to trend because people were requesting it. And they went to farmers and said, grow more cauliflower. And, you know, we're starting to see more, you know, foods that, that are coming, you know, into the system by people paying attention through social media because that is our direct link to people 
and believe it or not, to farmers so that we can get what we want. So the more that we can express what we'd like and the more that we can then vote with our taste buds in a positive way, then people will change the system. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we'll start to see that change. I mean, you can just see it now with with healthier foods in the food sections, with vegetarianism, with vegan meals, you know, all of that. It's at McDonald's, it's at Burger King, it's at fast food places. You know, you're starting to see these meals just become commonplace. And so I think that, you know, the more that people pay attention to that, the more they see business opportunity and that's what will change things. Well, uh, as we kind of start to run out of time here, I was going to ask you to paint us a picture of, let's say it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now. Uh, if as many people read this book as you and I hope will, uh, if the change really comes about, what would look, what would a, a, a typical farm look like? What would be different in terms of the way our farms work and their techniques? And what would be different when you or I actually walked into a either a restaurant or a grocery store or a bodega? What kind of specific choices would we have in front of us that we don't have now? Yeah, I'll take the last one first, which is we would walk in and we would see not just 80, not just 100, not just 200 varieties of different foods, you know, that were typically served. We would see foods from all over the world that we would be able to choose from that would suit our particular taste buds culturally or otherwise seasonally. Um, one of the biggest myths in the food space is food miles, for example, that, you know, buying something that's halfway across the country or halfway around the world is worse for the environment when indeed it's less than, you know, 5% of the carbon footprint of any type of food. What matters most is the type of food that's grown, how it's grown, and that's the important thing. So when we have just a few hundred plants, for example, that were served up when there are thousands and tens of thousands of edible plants on the planet, we can start to create a demand for things that will not only help the soil because they will create a polyculture type of environment for growth, but they will also be able to serve our needs when it comes to replacing, you know, vegetables or things that aren't as good for the environment that get ripped up every season and destroy the soil. So when you think of corn or you think of, you know, lettuce, the, the traditional lettuce that we have that's just ripped up every season and then replanted, if we have things that are perennial that are available to us, we'll be able to create a more sustainable system. Um, so I think the variety that we walk into uh, will be changed and it will also be able to be served things that are fresher and that are healthier for us and that we will know where they come from. So the labeling is going to change and there will be a carbon label attached to it, much like a calorie count, so that we know which are the best in class type of foods that will store the most carbon to come back to your original point. And then in terms of the farms themselves, I think we're starting to see the advent of vertical farming, which can be closer to cities that will allow, you know, the, the food type of desert environment to be alleviated in a way that hasn't been done before. We'll start to see robotics come into place so that farms themselves will be more efficient in the 
amounts of yield that will be able to be created. So I think the farming industry itself that's already moving a bit more toward organic and regenerative will start to be incentivized to do so. And so I think that's going to be a big, big change. And I also think that smallholder farms that will are part of a co-op that will have the opportunity to participate in world markets, uh, whether they're in the developing world or right here in the United States, will also be a big change because of the you know, the, the ability to get recognized through virtual farm markets and otherwise on the web. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity that were given to us, um, you know, farm boxes and different types of outlets that will help the farmers be able to sell their goods in a bigger, broader and uh, better way than ever has before. Well, this conversation is so encouraging because, it, first of all, it really does for me underscore that everybody can make a difference. Everybody does have a strength to share. There are individual choices that we all make every day that can add up to something significant. But it's also encouraging because it feels like in this moment that we're having this conversation, there are so many challenges in the world and there feel like there are so many intractable problems and many that are just fraught with real uh, terror in terms of uh, war and and other issues going on around the world and this is one that it feels like you're saying we can solve we can actually turn this around i don't want to put words in your mouth but it 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 feels like you're saying this is doable eat an apple munch on a tree nut feel good about what you're doing you're on the right path fantastic it really is exciting and i'm so grateful for you tom Kat Costigan for working uh, on the book uh, and for being on our podcast. Again, the book with co-authored with Robert Downey Jr. is Cool Food, Erasing Your Carbon Footprint One Bite at a Time. It's coming out January 23rd from Blackstone Publishing. And it really is uh, an important book for everybody to read because we all make decisions and choices every day that um, most of us are frankly oblivious to the impact they have on the world around us but each one of them does each one of those choices and decisions does have an impact and uh, you're giving us an option to make positive ones so thank you so much tom for for being with us today thanks for having me billy appreciate it uh, you've been listening to add passion and stir i want to thank our team at district productive who always produces these podcasts and enables us to put out a world-class podcast podcast with just absolutely amazing guests and the team at Share Strength, uh, starting with my sister, Debbie Shore, but for all of us at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, you can go to adpassionandstir.com and you can find lots of other great conversations. You can also uh, rate them and rank them and share them with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Really sure.